Last week we learned from John chapter 7 that Jesus is the living water and that there are barriers that can keep us from that living water. Things like familiarity in our lives that can lead to pride of thinking that we already know mixed motives, and fear. And we're going to see some of those same barriers in the passage for today, which is John 8, 12 to 59. Now, you may be thinking, hold up, Pastor Stephen, you skipped some verses. You skipped John 7, 53 to 8, 11, and I like those verses. Well, if you pull out your Bible, or I'll show you on the screen, you may notice that those verses are in double brackets or are preceded with a notation that reads something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 8.11. That's actually a bit of an understatement, but before I describe that, I need to address those who may be wondering what in the world these things mean at all. Maybe you've never considered how the Bible was written, how it was copied, and how it was preserved in an age before there was the internet. Maybe you've never thought about manuscripts and scribes or the reliability of the scripture. Or maybe you think that it's not reliable. And so just bringing this subject up can be like lobbing a grenade into people's thoughts for the rest of the service. And so how we got the Bible is something we need to address, but it is an expansive topic. And when some people hear that there are a variety of manuscripts or they hear that we don't have the original documents pinned by the apostles themselves or that scribes made copying errors and that the Bible didn't just fall out of heaven into your lap already in English, they're shocked by that idea. And it's a big topic, so I want you to watch a brief video clip that helps to describe this topic and the reason we can have assurance in the reliability of the scripture, it does a good job introducing and summarizing the reliability of the New Testament. So if you would, turn your attention to the screen for a few moments and take a look at this. Is today's New Testament the same as the original that was written 2,000 years ago? Or has the original been hopelessly lost? After all, not one of the original manuscripts still exists. New Testament critic Bart Ehrman asks, what good is it to say that the original writings of the New Testament were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently in thousands of ways there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. If we can't trust the New Testament, we can't trust what we think we know about Jesus of Nazareth, and there's no such thing as authentic Christianity. Let's look at this more closely. The New Testament, and all significant literature from the ancient world, is reconstructed into its original form by comparing manuscript copies that have survived. To determine the reliability of this reconstruction, Historians ask three questions. How many copies exist? How long is the time gap between when the original was written and when the earliest surviving copy was made? And how significant are the differences between the copies? The experts have more confidence in their reconstruction of the original text when there are lots of copies to work with, the time gap is short, and the differences are relatively insignificant. Historians are confident they have reconstructed the original works of Plato and Homer with a high degree of accuracy. So let's compare these works to the New Testament. We have 219 copies of Plato, 2,300 copies of Homer. But when it comes to the New Testament, we have an overwhelming 5,700 manuscript copies in the original Greek alone. 
In comparison with the average ancient Greek author, the New Testament copies are well over a thousand times more plentiful. If the average size manuscript were two and one half inches thick, all the copies of the works of the average Greek author would stack up four feet high, while the copies of the New Testament would stack up to over a mile high. This is indeed an embarrassment of riches. But how much time elapsed between the original writings and the earliest surviving manuscript copy? 1,300 years passed before the first surviving copy of Plato was written, and only 400 years for Homer. How about the New Testament? Just 35 years. In the world of ancient literature, this is a blink of an eye. The wealth of material that is available for determining the wording of the original New Testament is absolutely stunning. But these manuscripts are not identical. In fact, they contain roughly 400,000 differences. The obvious question then is, how significant are these variations? Most of them are simply variations in spelling, which are easy to sort out. Then we find minor differences, such as the use of synonyms or a definite article with a proper name. These have no effect on translation. There are also errors that scholars have determined were not in the original text. That means that less than 1% of all the variants have any real significance at all for the meaning of the original text. And none of these, not one, affects a single core doctrine of the Christian faith. Furthermore, in their various writings, early church leaders quoted the New Testament over a million times. So extensive are these citations that if all the other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. The overabundance of early and accurate manuscripts and quotations from those manuscripts combined to make reconstruction of the original Greek text of the New Testament virtually certain. The books of the New Testament you read today are the same as the original writings penned nearly 2,000 years ago. degree of certainty that the New Testament, as it is written and as we read it in our translations today, is reliable. And I think it's powerful when the video mentions that even if we somehow lost all of the manuscripts in existence and the number of those discovered is now more than cited in this video, it's now risen to more than 6,000, we would still be able to reconstruct virtually the entire New Testament just from the quotations made by early church fathers. That is, influential church leaders and theologians in the early parts of the church's life. Now, how does this relate to John 7, 53 to 8, 11, and the story of the woman caught in adultery? Well, as noted in your Bible, those verses were not included in the earliest and what most Bible scholars consider the most reliable manuscripts that we have. In addition, none of the early church fathers in the East, that is, those who continued using Greek as their primary language, none of them mentioned this story, cite it, refer to it, until the 10th century. And even in the 12th century, one of those church fathers wrote that these verses weren't included in accurate copies of the New Testament. It was known earlier in the Western part of the church, or the part of the church that began speaking Latin as its primary language, in about the 4th century. In addition to this, 
many of the later manuscripts that do include these verses, they'll put asterisks or they'll put abali beside them to indicate that there was doubt about their originality and some manuscripts even moved the passage to other locations, some placing this passage at the end of the Gospel of John. One manuscript even moved it into the Gospel of Luke. So it seems clear that this passage throughout the history of the church has been surrounded by a great deal of doubt and and concern about whether John actually wrote it and where it fit in his writings if he did. When you add to all of that the fact that it, it does seem to interrupt the flow of John's gospel and the events at the Feast of Booths that we're gonna see later. Jesus talked about living water, and he goes immediately, if you remove this passage, as it likely wasn't there originally, he goes immediately to talking about the other major image at the Feast of Booths, which was light. And so this passage seems to interrupt the flow that John intended for his gospel. It doesn't fit the style. There's vocabulary that John doesn't use elsewhere in his gospel that's only used in this passage. And when you consider that, it casts a good deal of doubt as to whether John included these verses in his gospel and makes it likely that they were actually inserted by a scribe later on. And as a result, I can't in good conscience preach that passage. I know that some may really love that story. It is a good story, and the theme of mercy and forgiveness that are represented there are wonderful. But we're not losing mercy and forgiveness if this passage is an original. Those themes are abundantly clear in many stories of the Gospels, from the woman at the well, to the parable of the prodigal son, to the, to the story of the woman who is a, likely a prostitute that comes and washes Jesus' feet. Some may say that this is to remove a passage from Scripture, and we shouldn't do that. And I agree, we should not remove passages from the Bible, but that's not really the question we're asking. The question is whether this was originally a passage of Scripture. Wouldn't it be just as bad to add something to Scripture that wasn't originally there as it would be to remove something from Scripture that was? Again, since there is so much uncertainty throughout church history regarding this passage, and because I'm convinced, along with the majority of Bible scholars, as evidenced if you get your Bible out and you see that in the brackets, most scholars note that they don't think this was originally there, then I can't in good conscience preach it as if it was because I'm committed to preaching the word of God, and I'm convinced that this was not originally in John's gospel. Should this cause us then to doubt the the reliability of scripture? Absolutely it should not. In fact, it's because we have such a wealth of information that we are able to discern with a high degree of certainty what was and what wasn't originally contained in the scriptures. If you're interested to learn more about this big topic and about manuscripts and scribes and how we came to have the Bible in the form that we do, I recommend a book uh, that you could start with by Timothy Paul Jones. It's called How We Got the Bible, and it gives a really good introduction to how the scriptures, especially the New Testament, came to be. With that, I want to turn to our passage for today, John 8, 12 to 59. And this is another long passage, so we're not going to be able to read every verse in it or cover every verse. I want to encourage you, though, that when we're not able to cover every verse on a Sunday morning, that you would take the time to read the passage in its entirety so that you can gain the broader context and understanding of what was going on. But what we're going to do today is examine three claims about Jesus. And Jesus makes these claims about himself, and and we want to look at what they mean for us. 
These claims all relate to who Jesus was, his identity, and what he was doing in the world. And their application has to do with what it means to believe Jesus. That's what John is talking about in his gospel, and he reiterates it over and over again. What does belief in Jesus really mean? They show us that we should believe, what we should believe about Jesus, and how that belief should look. And the the way that I might phrase it is this, that you should trust Jesus beyond belief. You'll see in a moment, I think, why. It was still the Feast of Booths, the week-long festival when the Jews celebrated the autumn harvest and remembered their time of wandering in the wilderness, and they prayed for rain, and they prayed for salvation. And during that feast, large candelabras were set up in the courtyard of the temple, and they were filled with oil, and then they were lit at night. Now, we're not talking about the kind of candelabras that you put on stage at a wedding or something like that. These candelabras were so large that priests had to use ladders to climb up to get to the top of them to fill them with oil and then light them. And the wicks were made out of the priest's old garments. And so these were very large candelabras. And it was said that when they were lit, the light from these candelabras could be seen all over Jerusalem at night. Sources say that righteous men would take torches in their hands and they would dance in the firelight at night during the Feast of Booths. And I tried to convince some of our board members to do a little demonstration for us, but for some reason none of them were willing to do a torch dance. This light ceremony, much like the water ceremony, was reminiscent of the Jews who were wandering in the wilderness when they followed a pillar of fire by night. It also recalled prophecies about God's light and his future kingdom and salvation from passages like the one we read last week from Zechariah 14, 6 to 8, which says, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, something we can be thankful during the New England winter, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. This is the background of Jesus' statement in John 8, 12, when Jesus stands up during the Feast of Booths and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The debate that follows between Jesus and the Pharisees swirls around why we should believe, why they should believe Jesus' own testimony and the divergence between light and darkness or heaven and this world. We have to understand this debate in its historical context. Jesus was not trying to prove that God exists. The Pharisees already believed that. Really, he was just challenging their understanding of who God is and who they were. Light doesn't prove itself. It's self-authenticating. You know it when you see it. Or better, you know it when you see by it. As C.S. Lewis put it, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus was making a similar claim about himself, not so much trying to prove himself to the Pharisees, but or prove himself by or on their terms, but to say that by him they would be able to see if they would believe him. In fact, they thought themselves strict adherents of God's law. They thought God's law was like a lamp that was shining for their lives. But like Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And they thought that they were walking in that light. Jesus was simply saying to them that if they really loved God and loved his word, they would recognize him because he is the light that gives life. 
And of course, this wasn't the first conversation Jesus had had with these people, and he had offered other evidence to them already. And so Jesus isn't here just saying to them, hey, follow me and don't worry about it. Just follow me because I said so. But at some point, after Jesus has given evidence and reasoned with them, faith was required. If Jesus is who he says, then there will come a time when you have to stop demanding more evidence from him and you have to start believing him. And what does that mean to believe him? Like we saw last week, the problem was not that Jesus hadn't given them enough evidence for who he was, but that they were from below. At John 8, 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. There was a fundamental conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. They came from different places and they were committed to opposite ideas, opposite things. And Jesus wanted them to see and he offered light, but they wouldn't take it because they wanted to remain in the dark. We'll discover in the next chapter, John chapter 9, that the reason they couldn't accept Jesus is because he's the light and although they they were blind, they claimed they could see. Is there anything more pitiful than someone who lacks what they need but is too prideful to accept a gracious offer of help? Remember a couple months ago, there was a truck that was sitting at the end of the church driveway and I was getting ready to go somewhere and I saw them, so I walked over and said, is everything okay? They had a flat tire. I said, would you like me to help you to change that flat tire? He said, no, I, I called AAA, they're on the way. Now, this is just a side note, maybe you'll be offended by this, but To me, if you're driving a pickup truck, one of the things you're saying by that is, I changed my own flat tires. That's just me, but you know, I, I don't know. So I said, okay, you know what, fine. I leave, I come back an hour and a half or two hours later, now they're still standing there with a AAA guy who's staring at it looking like he doesn't have any idea what to do. Now, maybe they just couldn't get the the spare to fall from under the bed or, or whatever. Maybe they couldn't get it to work right, but I pull into my driveway and I think to myself, If he'd have just accepted my help, he'd have been out of here an hour and a half ago and gone about his life. There's nothing more pitiful than someone who refuses to accept a gracious offer of help. How much worse is it when we're walking in darkness, but our pride keeps us from the offer of Jesus' light? Yes, light exposes. It reveals things that we may be ashamed of. The light of Christ, it exposes our rebellion. It exposes our weakness. It ruins our pride. It ruins all the ways that we try to convince ourselves that we're good and there's light in us. And the problem Jesus exposed with the Pharisees was not that they couldn't get enough evidence to trust what he was saying, but that they had been in the dark so long That when the light of the world showed up, there was a visceral reaction to him. They could not help but squint and squirm and try to turn away from the light. They recoiled in revolt. They squinted and tried to extinguish the light. But according to John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you find yourself recoiling against the claims of Christianity you find that you squint and you squirm when you hear Christians speak about their love for Jesus, if your skin crawls at the thought of needing to confess your faults, humble yourself and believe in Christ, consider that it might not be because you're so smart that you can't possibly believe this nonsense. Maybe it's actually because 
You're so used to the dark that you can't stand the light. But if you see the light, what should you do? Follow it. Follow him. Jesus is the light of the world, so follow him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, whoever walks in me will have the light of life, but whoever follows me. Why put it that way? Do you remember the pillar of fire that led God's people in the wilderness in the Old Testament? Exodus 13, 21 describes it. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Jesus was claiming to be that light. Not like the light of a flashlight that you carry around and you point it where you want it to go, but like the light that you follow, more like the, the star that the wise men followed when they were trying to find the, the newborn king than like a flashlight that you decide where you're going to point so that you can illuminate your own steps. What we do with Jesus isn't think that I point Jesus where I'd like him to go and he illuminates my way for me, but Jesus is illuminating his way and if I'll follow him, my way will be illuminated. Not the way I want things, but his way will become my way. Jesus wasn't just asking that they believe something about him, but that they actually follow him. Belief should lead to discipleship. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's pushing them to understand that belief is not just up here, but that it leads to following. This isn't like going over to bright nights and looking at the displays and going, ooh, and ah. It's more like following the star that God has put in our lives, following the sun that God has put in the, the sky, the, the Son of God, Jesus, following him that we might know where our lives ought to go. And if you've seen the light, the question for you is, are you following him? Really following him. Not like you follow someone on Instagram, but going where he goes and doing what he does. And if you're not, have you really seen the light? The passage continues as Jesus told them that they would finally know who he was when they lifted up the Son of Man. That is, after his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. There'd be no more questions, no more bickering about, was this really the Son of God? Those people who had heard him teach and who would be those who helped to crucify him, they'd know, they'd understand who he really was. And as Jesus pushes them, the Bible says, some believed in him. But as we've already seen in the Gospel of John, there are different kinds of of belief. The light continued to lead them forward, but they were only willing to go so far. And here's what Jesus said next that made them mad enough that they wanted to arrest him. It says in John 8, 31 to 32, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John has already introduced the topic of fickle faith in John 2.23. And there people believed because they saw a sign, but their faith was shallow and they didn't persist in their faith. Here, people believe because of the force of Jesus' teaching, but their faith doesn't persist when that same teaching confronts their own sin. They're unable to abide and their faith proves faint. Why would they be offended by Jesus telling them that to abide in him means liberty because they believed they were already free do you see the theme developing people who think they already see won't accept jesus as the light people who think they're already free 
will not accept Jesus as true liberty. They were the offspring of Abraham. They were God's chosen people. They were the carriers of spiritual truth. But Jesus knew they weren't really free. He confronted the illusion in verses 34 to 36. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus was speaking to the most conservative religious people in Israel. These were the defenders of God's law and morality in their culture. And yet Jesus says that they were slaves unless they would abide in him or stay with him. I wonder how often we consider ourselves free because of our titles, our heritage, our political or moral positions and causes, but we're not actually abiding in Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders justified their sin using their law and their causes. They thought that they would be protecting the law by killing Jesus. But Jesus warns them that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Bible scholar D.A. Carson wrote, For Jesus, then, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against God who made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness, an evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. I believe that during an election year, this provides a warning to us, especially because I know that most of us lean right and that we are conservatives, as the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to in this passage were. And I'm not at all saying that there are not causes to which we ought to be devoted, that we shouldn't be committed to beliefs and liberties, that we, we shouldn't seek to defend these things. But I think we ought to ask ourselves this question. If he's done it before with the conservative Jews in the first century, might not the enemy of our souls seek to use our supposed liberty and even our moral causes to smuggle the slavery of self-centeredness back into our own hearts? If we go about defending the depravity of men we want to lead us because we think it will bring stability to our nation, that it will bring victory to good causes, or that it will make for a good economy, how could that not be detrimental to our own way of thinking? What else are we willing to defend or tolerate for the sake of causes? Are all of our causes as selfless as we would like to think? And even if our causes are good, what effect does this kind of compromise have on our witness as a church or on our personal ability to follow Christ? If we celebrate arrogant men and women as the answers to our problems, will not that arrogance infect us? Will we not then feel justified in treating others with arrogance and excusing it because it is for a good cause? Discerning politics and liberty is no easy undertaking. So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that in an election year, when we are tempted to become so very narrowly focused on external solutions, we should keep in front of us at all times the reality that Jesus is true liberty. That when he came, he did not set himself up against some political systems or some ways of doing, uh, doing government, but he really set himself up as opposed to all of them. 
Not that we ought to say we shouldn't have government or something like that, but he was standing in his own category. He wasn't part of one of the political system. He wasn't part of one of, the, one of the ways of doing government. He was his own government. And he calls them to an understanding that liberty does not come because of a way that people choose to do government, but true liberty comes when you will abide in him. I'm not saying don't go vote. I'm not saying don't hold strongly to the things that you believe in because I think that there are things we ought to hold strongly to. And if you've come for more than one week, you will have heard me preach on those things too. And so if you're starting to feel offended right now, please recall to mind all the times that I have addressed those things that you care so deeply for. And we land on the same page with those things. But what I'm saying is that when our culture is so embattled in external solutions. It is up to the people of God to say, I'm going to abide in Jesus. I'm not going to let this, I'm not going to treat this as if it is the end of the world. I am not, Jesus will decide when that happens. I'm not going to treat this as if whoever gets elected is going to be the solution to our problems. Might one or the other help more? Yeah, and so we, we do vote. We do take that seriously. But we do not act as if it is going to bring the solution, as if it will bring the light, or as if it can actually provide liberty. Because here's the truth about liberty. External liberties can always be removed from us. But if you know the liberty that comes from Jesus, it doesn't matter if you are a slave, it doesn't matter if you are in prison, it doesn't matter if you are poor, or if you're wealthy, or if you're powerful, in any of those circumstances, you will be free because you will be able to do what you know you ought to do according to the grace of God no matter what the external situation is. As we learned on Wednesday when Miko preached to us from Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In any of these circumstances, I know how to be free. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you want true liberty? Abide in me. Stay with him. Follow him. Set your heart on true liberty first. And even if external liberties fail, there is a liberty that is only for the sons and daughters of God that no one can take from you. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is liberty. The final claim he made, the one that pushed those who supposedly believed in him so far that they wanted to stone him, was that he is, I am. Verses 39 to 59 describe Jesus and the Pharisees going back and forth about their roots and their origins. The Jews claimed to be the children of God descended from Abraham. Jesus said that if they were descended from Abraham, they would have believed him. But just like Abraham, who had faith and followed God's lead, they, they would have followed him. He said that they were acting like their real father, the devil, who has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. As you can imagine, they really liked that. So they implied that Jesus was an illegitimate child and had a demon. Jesus, of course, denies that and says in verse 52 that if anyone keeps his word, that person will never taste death. They thought this was ridiculous and asked if he thought he was greater than their father Abraham who had died. Their argument concludes in verses 56 to 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, without getting into the fine details of the argument, Jewish rabbis thought that God allowed Abraham to see the future. 
But the Jews arguing with Jesus ask how Jesus, how he, could have seen Abraham. Jesus makes the astounding claim that before Abraham was, I am. That's an odd way of putting it, isn't it? Why not say before Abraham was, I was, or I was before Abraham. That would have been an astonishing claim by itself, but Jesus was claiming something a little bit more. He was using language from Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 where God speaks through Isaiah saying things like, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Or, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last, Isaiah 48, 12. Jesus claims not only to have come from the Father, he claims in this passage to be God. Little wonder they picked up stones to try and kill him. For those of us who haven't picked up stones to try and kill Jesus, this adds to our understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus. It pushes a little bit further on what it means to follow him and to know him. Because since Jesus is God, then keeping his word is all the more important. Following Jesus is indeed keeping God's word. It's so important that, as we read earlier, anyone who does it will never taste death. This doesn't mean that you gain salvation by trying harder to do what Jesus says. It means that you receive him as the word of God and then you stay with him. Jesus is the word of God, so stay with him. And all three points in today's passage are very similar Jesus tells us to follow him because he's the light, abide in him because he's true liberty, and keep his word because he is I am. This begs the question of us. How are you believing in Jesus? Is your belief characterized by following, abiding, keeping his word? Or is your belief in Jesus just a curiosity? It's just a vestige of your heritage. It's just a bit of religion that helps you keep true light at bay. And what if Jesus confronts you, as he certainly will confront you? Will you still follow him? What if he shines the light in your life and you find yourself squinting because of pride or your greed or your unforgiveness or your impurity? Will you revolt and turn away from the light with childish claims that you make your own truth or that you have your own light like a fool trying to use a candle when the sun is shining? Because that's what we often do, isn't it? When we say things like, there's light in me, what we're claiming before the Almighty God is, I'm going to try to use a candle when you offer the sun. That's silly. Or will you turn to the light of Christ and will you allow him to expose and to heal? What if he calls you to give up some external liberties or stop focusing so much on your anger over your pet causes? What if instead of slapping his name on your causes, he asks you to develop the kind of walk with him that isn't about labels, but is about knowing him personally and deeply and by his spirit? In fact, he does confront us like this today and every day. After all, he is, I am. We don't believe in him with a label or with our moral causes. We believe in him by keeping his word. But following Jesus is not just a matter of trying harder. Following Jesus is a matter of grace. And so if you think that following him, 
abiding in him, keeping his word. It's just a matter of me trying to do better. Then you're mistaken. Because you will never do better enough. You will never do good enough to be right with Jesus. And that was part of the point that Jesus was trying to make with the Pharisees and others. Was that for all of their their moral high ground that they thought that they had. For all the the persnickety ways that they tried to keep God's law, they had still missed actually having relationship with God by faith. And the same can be true for us. When instead of loving Jesus with our whole heart, we decide that I'm going to use Jesus for my brand, and we slap Jesus' name on what we love and what we like, we're not following him, we're trying to make Jesus follow us like someone who's carrying a candle in broad daylight. But Jesus will not follow you. He calls you to follow him. Is that what your faith is like? Is that what your belief in him is like? Because here's the danger. John tells us there were some present that day who believed in him. And by the end of John chapter 8, they'd picked up stones to try and kill him. Might it just be that some of us have also believed in him. But when we're actually confronted with who he really is, when we're actually confronted with what the light exposes, we too would pick up stones and say, that's not my Jesus. No, it's not your Jesus. He's the I am. You're not. You follow him. He won't follow you. Would you close your eyes with me? Heavenly Father, today we come to you and we thank you so much for the grace of God given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you do not leave us stuck with our little bit of light that we think that we've got. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of sending the true light that shines in the darkness. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for every time that we have tried to hold a candle to the light of Jesus as if we could lead him around with our little bit of supposed light. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for pride that would keep us from allowing the true light of Christ to shine in our lives and expose the darkness of our hearts and allow us to see our motives for what they are, allow us to see our pride for what it is and our sin for what it is so that we could be cleansed. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us when we've made belief something merely that we said with our words or that we, we, uh, we talk about, but not something in which we're following you by the power of faith and of your Holy Spirit living in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of people who have true faith in you, a faith that is expressed not merely with our mouths, but a faith that is also expressed by a life that follows Jesus. Lord, today I pray for those that are in need of cleansing, Lord, they may be here and they have tried to hide from the light and I pray that today you would help them to open their hearts. Let them not be offended by what you say, but let them come to you and receive the cleansing of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with mixed motivations and and they're, they're trying to discern how do I move forward in relationship with Christ, but there are things that they've not surrendered to you areas of life that they've not let go of to to trust you with those things and they have continued to try to walk in their own light rather than the light of Jesus. I pray that today your light would expose, graciously expose and cleanse and enable them to be able to see you. I pray for those, God, who have been stuck in this sort of moralistic Christianity, a judgmental, legalistic form of religion that that keeps them thinking that they're good, that they're better than others, but they never actually break through to understanding what it means to know they're cleansed and they're forgiven and they're right with God.
that they never actually break through to understanding what it means that he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And they're keeping so many rules that they think they're free on their own terms and yet they're bound by their own sin, blinded to it by their own pride. Jesus, would you expose that today? Would you give them the true liberty that only comes from surrender and submission to Jesus Christ? Would you allow them to see that in spite of their pride, you've loved them and you're offering them true light today? And Lord, I pray for those who've never known you and they've come this morning and maybe they didn't know what to expect, know what to think, but they've heard today that Jesus is the light of the world. And even as we sang this morning and they came in and and they were hearing the people of God worshiping the Lord, there was something in them that said, this is right, this is true. And it's something that has now gone beyond their reasoning and every excuse that they've built up. And there's one more thing they need to do, Lord. They need to confess and believe in you. They need to follow you, Jesus. Would you help them today to believe you, to really believe you? to have a belief that follows you. We thank you for that, Lord. I'm gonna ask right now if our prayer partners would come, pastors and prayer partners, if you're here, if you'd come and stand at the front, the congregation as they do, would you stand? We're gonna close in prayer, and as we close in prayer, if you would like someone to pray with you about surrender, about walking in the light of Christ, if you'd like someone to pray with you about salvation, our prayer partners are available. They would love to do that with you. It would be our privilege. Or if there's anything else that we can pray with you about, some need in your life, we would be happy to do that. Father, today we thank you so much for the grace again of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the Word of God. And we pray, Lord, that as we go, we would not go with hearts that are burdened and weighed down, but we would go with hearts that are excited to say, I'm following Jesus. I pray that no one of us, Lord, would leave and think that our walk with you is merely a religious exercise, but we would go knowing that your spirit enlivens faith and that, Lord, we would expect you to be at work in us. I pray, Lord, that we would expect you as we go to be exposing our hearts and that when you do expose the sin and the, the wrong motives in our hearts, that rather than turning away, we would thank you and praise you for shining true light into our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be people who walk in real light and liberty through Jesus. We love you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being in church this morning. If you would like prayer, if you'd like to give your life to Christ, please come and pray with one of our prayer partners. Otherwise, we'll see you again on Wednesday. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.